In the early days of the internet, radical libertarians were scattered, lonely, and faceless. Without direction, they resigned to scour the web, sifting through content providers in a wasteland plagued by YouTube demonetization, Facebook jail, and covert internet censorship. But then, in 2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com. All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Read Rothbard. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Actual Anarchy Podcast, the podcast where we talk about those movies from that Rothbardian anarcho-capitalist perspective. And tonight we are back on track. We are on a, uh, what do they call it? Like a back on track payment plan. We, we've we owed you this episode for a few weeks now, but Robert fell ill. His uh, sickly old body has finally started crapping out on him. And so we had a special guest join us for guest hosting duties on the movie Ratatouille. He was a professional chef, is a professional chef. And so he had a very unique perspective and was able to fill in quite nicely for Mr. Robert Johnson, my actual co-host on the actual anarchy podcast uh if you do like dan reed the culinary libertarian who joined us to check out his website at culinary libertarian.com he's got a podcast of his own and uh, the episode that he was on for us was actual anarchy 109 this one is on death wish 1974 and 2018 death wish is the 110th episode of the actual anarchy podcast and the show notes and more can be found at actual anarchy.com slash 110 robert how are you Oh, I'm back and better than ever now with 80% less disease. I'm pretty stoked about it. I was laid up fairly hard with some, well, I'd never had pink eye before in my life, but now I've had pink eye, so that's exciting. Hey, Kobe, um, how'd that ass taste? Yeah, you know, nutty. It's good. I don't know. It's all right. That was a Shaquille O'Neal uh, diss rap <laughs> <laughs> with, uh, against Kobe Bryant back in the day. Yeah, so I apologize if there's any coughs or sniffles. I'm still recovering. I'm going to try and hit my mute button pretty good, but I don't always make it. All right. Well, I'm glad that you are feeling better and in our pre-show content, which is available for our Patreon supporters at actualenergy.com slash Patreon. Uh, you got to hear how surprised I was at the quality of your health at the moment, uh, among other things. So do check that out if uh, if you are so inclined. We do appreciate all you Patreon supporters. It helps keep one, two, three lights on on this end. And uh, Robert, you got at least one or two on, on, on your side there. Shit so bright. Gotta wear shades. I don't have shades, man. I, I should be wearing my sunglasses at night here. Anyway, why do we get into that last nighter's portion of the show? Speaking of sunglasses at night, if you're okay with that. Is that, is that where we wear sunglasses at night on the, on the last nighter's portion of the show? That's what we should be doing because we're so cool and hip. Oh, we will now. It's going to be a new thing starting episode 111 because I don't, I don't actually have them here right now. But let's get into that last nighter's portion of the show. everyone, it's Daniel and Robert, Daniel Elwood and Robert Johnson of the Last Nighters podcast. We are the Last Nighters, and we are also found on the Launchpad Media, where they're always launching new ideas in your direction. This episode is a week late, I think. Um, Robert was sick last week, so we had a guest come on and do Ratatouille with us. But we are doing the Death Wish Death Match tonight on the Last Nighters. 1974 with Chuck Bronson versus 2018 with Bruce Willis, Death Wish. And Robert... Speaking hey, buddy. Of death wish. You you have recovered from a near death experience of of being uh, riddled with disease and illness, and it sounds like you're feeling a lot better. Well, you're not hearing the parts where I mute the mic and then I go and I hock up along, but 
I'm mostly enough recovered. I'm going to try and record this episode. Hopefully it turns out all right and you're not going to be spent editing out a whole bunch of crap. Well, if if editing out crap was uh, what I needed to do on the show, we wouldn't have a show because, you know, that's what the show is, really. It'd just, just be an hour of silence. Yeah, an hour of silence. Um, I'm not sure anyone would listen to it, but it, would, it might be really artistic, right? It would be a statement. <clears throat> it's like that uh, painting of all white and call it snow. That sounds good. <laughs> you just, you got to like really understand it to get it man and speaking of getting it the bad guys get it in these movies here so why don't we start off with the el google descriptione shall we which which of which film uh well let's do both i've got the new one pulled up let's get the old one pulled up as well and that way we can do the compare and contrast so it's uh just a moment here okay death wish 1974 film versus death wish 2018 and for whatever reason it's not giving me the google description hold on hold on let's make this happen flawless content on the aa show nothing but professionalism here ladies and gentlemen well i i really should have prepared more better oh there we go all right all right we might add a few of this craps out here okay the google description for the first episode up for bid death wish or first movie up for bid death wish 1974 drama thriller one hour 34 minutes seven out of ten on the imdb 65 percent rotten tomatoes and three out of four from mr roger ebert uh and no rating from the google description people uh it, it's asking me if i did you like this movie thumbs up thumbs down um i have not responded yet and and apparently not enough people have but Let's get into that uh, written description here. Once a mild-mannered liberal, New York City architect Paul Kersey, played by Charles Bronson, snaps when intruders break into his home, murdering his wife and violently raping his daughter. A business trip to Tucson, Arizona, lands him a gift from a client, a revolver he uses to patrol the streets when he returns home. Frustrated that the police cannot find the intruders, he becomes a vigilante, gunning down any criminal that crosses his path. The public finds this vigilantism heroic. Came out July 24, 1974. The director was Michael Winner, and the box office was 22 or $20.3 million on a $3 million budget. And would you like to respond to that one, or should we start with the new one as well and then kind of do the compare contrasty stuff? Yeah, sure. Let's do that. The second thing you said. The second thing. All right. Robert has chosen door number two on this episode of The Last Nighters, which I don't know if I said the Last Nighters episode number yet, but it is 53. So you can find the show notes and more at lastnighters.com slash 53. Death Wish 2018 with Bruce Willis, 6.4 on the IMDb, uh, 17% Rotten Tomatoes, so people hated it. Metacritic, 31%. However, comma, 86% of them Google, Google users like this movie. And here's the description. Dr. Paul Kersey is a surgeon who often sees the consequences of the city's violence in the emergency room. When home intruders brutally attack his wife and young daughter, Kersey becomes obsessed with delivering vigilante justice to the perpetrators. As the anonymous slayings grab the media's attention, the public begins to wonder if the deadly Avenger is a guardian angel or the Grim Reaper himself. It was initially released in Indonesia on March 6th of 2018. Directors Eli Roth, budget of $30 million and a box office of 48 six million dollars uh, of course has the uh, incomparable bruce willis who seems to be making as many movies as nick cage uh, and, and and maybe slightly higher quality but uh, what do you think about the two google descriptiones robert well it's an interesting choice to remake um i know that the original death wish movies you know spawned a few sequels that were fairly well received and then chuck bronson went on to make a whole bunch of other movies like kind of these action revenge type movies with uh the director winner guy yeah, Michael Winner. Yeah. Um, I The only thing that's... I think the 2018 version, it's interesting that the 2018 version isn't as well received as the original. Maybe because we have higher standards these days, because I think that the 2018 version is an objectively better film. It's a way better made. Although I think that Bruce Willis either has lost the ability to act or never had it to begin with. I mean... Uh, He's okay in certain roles. I mean, he was great in Die Hard. He's great in Pulp Fiction, but he had limited roles. He had limited, you know, emotional range that he had to portray. This this movie has him doing the whole gamut. Anger, sadness, loss, you know, despair, you know, happiness, just everything. And some scenes are so wooden where I'm like, was that the best take you had? Really? You don't want to do another take? Because it sounded like... Bruce is like thinking about something else while he's reading the line as if he's a robot reading off a cue card. It was terrible. But others and then other scenes, you know, he's pretty good. You know, he, he when he's kind of crying over his 
dead wife or he's angry about, you know, the cops not doing anything. And so he had to go on and become this vigilante. <clears throat> you know, you believe it a bit. And the whole movie itself is is pretty good. I'm surprised at the the super low ratings. And I'm surprised that the movie didn't make much money. I wonder if if Bruce Willis wasn't, you know, if the movie wouldn't have made more money with a different actor. Uh, maybe there's some name recognition and it got a little bit of extra money. But I'm, I'm not so sure. I... It seems like Bruce Willis is a guy that should be let go into the pasture and off into the sunset. He's done his done his duty. Um, I would have given this to another guy, maybe a little bit younger guy. Although I, I do enjoy the you know the old man that wants to protect his family and you know fails and it's a good storyline. I like the revenge storyline, but you know there are issues with it, which I'm if we can have hopefully we'll have time to get into. So I've got I've got notes. Got notes, Daniel. All right, notes and notes and notes. All right. Well, I, I've got a little bit of reaction to what, what you're saying, and I do agree that Bruce Willis can be quite wooden, though I thought he was pretty good in this movie. When when you look at his catalog of films, there's a bunch of stuff you never even heard of. I mean, this guy is prolifically doing roles, and aside from your occasional, you know, breakout hit in Die Hard, and then where he basically becomes the same guy, the John McClane with the charm and the action, um, he's pretty stiff. I would say, but I th it sort of works well in this movie, I think. And I, I don't think I would have had somebody different do this. And if Chuck Bronson is any indication, uh, he was 52 during the first one and they made four more. So by the fifth one, I believe he was 72 years young, spring chicken. And, and they get progressively worse or so I hear uh, two, three, four, five. But uh, it sounds to me like if I were to pose the question to you, Chuck Bronson versus Bruce Willis, who would win? Your response would be what? Well... I relate more to Bruce Willis, and I think the, the role in this 2018 version was written better. Like, he had more visceral things to do. So there were scenes where he was, you know, showing emotion and, you know, showing how much he loved his family and stuff like that. In the original 70, 74 version, or whatever year it is, 74? You are correct, sir. There are a few things the movie does better, which I wish they had continued, but... For the most part, no. Like the the original movie, he just you know the, the his wife is killed and his daughter's in this coma, and then he just pisses off to Tucson and he's just hanging out doing architect stuff. And they're showing some scenes about him in the desert hanging out doing stuff. And it's like, what does this have to do with the movie? When is this movie gonna get back to being a movie? Even the cameraman's bored. He doesn't want to be here. But then you go, okay, okay, so he's gonna get a gun. Uh, all right. Well, the the way the 2018 movie handles is way better. I mean, just go buy a gun. Um, well, Chicago, it's a little bit tough. <clears throat> well, and then the movie, you know, travels into disbelievability because of that. Like at one point, he buys like a an automatic machine gun, <clears throat> just just on a day, just like oh, I bought one today. I'll just well, go buy it. And that kick ass uh, <laughs> coffee table where it kicks out. Yeah, yeah. He just buys it. Just no problem. Chicago. Yeah, right. But the one thing that I like better about the 74 version, and the two are fairly different, um, but there's one thing that I like better about the 74 version, and that is after he kills his first person, he is shaken by it. There's a scene where he goes into his home, back home, and he pukes up. He loses, he tosses his cookies. He is like, oh my God, I can't believe what I just did. There's no dialogue. He's not, there's no one for him to talk to, but he has to express it all, you know, his body language. And he's just so upset because he's just a regular guy. But then when Chuck Bruce Willis goes out and kills a guy, he like goes home, turns on the news. He's like super into it. He's like excited. And then he's just like seeing the response of what happened. And he's just like happy about it. And he has a little nap, but he never seems bothered by what he had to do until the very end where he's talking to his brother. And he's like, man, you know, my wife and family, my family's gone, you know, basically, you know, and nothing happened. No, nothing bad happened to the people that did it to him. And, you know, he wanted this justice. And so he did have a little bit of an emotional response. But I thought the 74 version did it better with him having to be, you know, like a normal guy having this traumatic experience, even though he, you know, basically went out hunting basically for muggers. But I like the the new version better, the 2018 version better because it's a more coherent story. Like it's about Bruce Willis's, you know, story of him getting revenge on the actual people that hurt his family. The 74 version, he's like, well, my wife and daughter got killed or well, my daughter's in a crazy bin and my mom, my wife is dead. So I'm just going to go on this revenge against muggers in general. Like Jeff Goldblum 
is in there like attacking his family. And then we never see Jeff Goldblum again. Actually, we do just one time. Do we? He passes them by in the park. They're coming up the stairs. He's going down the stairs. And I think they bump into each other. Um, and, but but there is no like resolution to that. He doesn't end up finding them again. And in a way, I think that actually makes the story better. Like, I agree that it's more what? complete in the 2018. But you got to understand in the 70s, it's like... They were they were very heavy on the the social commentary, and that's actually why he went to Tampa, Arizona, or Tucson. But having that open, uh, unresolved ending, I think it, it was intentional, and and actually, you know, part of the part of the story it was was that it was left open that he was now in a position where he's like inspiring others to take individual responsibility for their own defense. Uh, I can see the original being as more of one man's descent into, you know, like finding a taste for justice and vigilantism and going around just finding, you know, justice and finding, finding injustice and righting the wrongs on the spot. But I, and that's more of like a Breaking Bad kind of a storyline where like, it's more about him and his journey to becoming, I don't know, some sort of judge, jury and executioner. Some sort of superhero type person. Well, sure, but but there's as also as opposed to the 2018, which is actually you know a beginning, a middle, and an end, and all has to deal with this one one group one one action. Right, right. Which I want to get into that a little bit um, when we when we move further on. But but back to the 74, just for a little bit. I mean, this this is one of the original classic revenge thrillers that kind of gave it that cult classic edge to oh, it. So there's no revenge on the people that did with the thing. Right, but but on bad guys in general, and it also shows the ineptitude of the police bureaucratic uh, monopoly. Right, it shows the incompetence of government to solve the problem, and it also shows an individual accepting responsibility for their own safety, and it shows how it's a, a much more effective solution. In fact, the police spend more resources and the effort trying to track him down than the criminals, right? There's one scene where they're talking about, what do we know about this guy? And they pan the room and there's like 50 police people in there all working on finding Chuck Bronson, right? And it's like yeah. they've given up on all of the street crime hoodlum thugs and they're only focused on this one guy because the optics of it, because he's showing how inept they are and how basically they're out of a job if they can't contain this information. And right? I like that. That's a very realistic scene because you, you know whenever anything comes out that makes the cops look bad, that's when they really devote all their resources to it to try and solve it. Like when a cop gets killed, they go pull out all the stops to go get the guy who did it. Oh, yeah. Yep. And they become <coughs> the vigilantes, if you will. Like, oh, yeah. And then that guy's never going to make it. He's yeah. always killed in a hail of bullets. Yeah, there's never a trial at that point. Right. Yeah. So the um, let's see, I have a point here somewhere, somewhere. Oh, so back to sort of what I was saying and then related to what you were saying earlier, they're heavy on the social commentary, but this is back when the, the inner cities were really falling apart. Um, and especially places like New York, you know, the, the subway was just overtaken, uh, very run down, lots of graffiti, um, basically, from what I understand, like controlled by criminal element and, and not the ones that wear the badges. And if you want to see another example of this, I think there's a, a James Bond movie with Roger Moore, who where he's in New York. And I forget which one it is. Um, you might remember, but it really shows how run down and crappy New York was at the time. And actually, Malcolm Gladwell, who I forget which book it is, um, and you, you might know, Robert, but he had this theory that the crime reduction is due to the availability of abortions. And so there's fewer unwanted kids who would have been raised in broken homes. And thus there's less crime uh, as you get through these through the 80s and 90s. I, I find that to be an interesting argument from him. And I don't know if are you familiar with this argument at all? No, I mean, it's I mean, I'm, I'm vaguely familiar with a few of his works. I'm not super familiar with uh, that argument. That's the first time I've ever heard this. All right. and, and I haven't read this in a long time. I think it was the tipping point or something like that. But it was uh, various chapters on different issues. One of them was how st they were able to look at statistics um, in grades on what teachers were grading papers on or, or tests on. And they could see that the teachers were putting their thumb on the scale uh, because a lot of their performance or their incentives for more salary and, and whatnot is, is based on the, the kids' scores or their uh, their ratings and, and things like that. But anyway, one of them was about street crime. And his idea was basically that once abortion became legalized, he meant that there were fewer unwanted and thereby poorly raised children, which as they grow 
uh, in a generational aspect, it reduces crime because there's fewer of the people who would be more inclined for that based on, you know, their their limited circumstances or, or what have you. Uh, however, my opinion is that it's far more correlative than ca- than causal. And I would also posit it's not a justification for murdering people. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think you can get get away with that one just because you said, well, I was born into an unwanted home. So, right. But the 74 movie, it's basically showing, you know, the, the crime. Uh, and, and this was the, the era of white flight. You know, this is, and they actually um, show this where Bronson considers moving to the suburbs. Um, I think he's talking with somebody and they're like, yeah, we should move to the suburbs so our families are safe. And then we just commute into the city for our jobs. Then we commute back out. And in more current time, you know, now now it's this and, and that's considered racist, by the way. Uh, but now it's well, now it's gentrification. Now people are moving back into the city. And that's racist, too, by the way. Yes. So you, <laughs> you can't do anything and not be racist. Everyone is racist. Uh or so goes the uh, the Lego song. Everyone is racist, apparently. So anyway, um, uh, but that point we made about the government monopoly on police services, and therefore they have no incentive to actually solve problems. Um, their biggest concern was how it looks. So they bury the statistics that show the um, unfavorable perception of their effort and how crime was reduced by something like 40 or 50 percent once the criminals knew that there was a chance that somebody might be armed and able to defend themselves. That's just one guy or just a few guys, right? Right. Like even him and a couple of copycats for the entire city, just knowing that there's a chance that you could get shot by a few of your victims and that reduces crime by 40 percent. Right. In in this, you know, fictional story. But but I think it it would have uh, an, an effect because we know it has an effect. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if your your potential victims may may have a, a means to defend themselves, then the likelihood of you attacking them is going to be much lower than if you know definitely they're not able to defend themselves. Yeah, that's right. That's right, baby. But so so this is back to where, you know, it's sort of the social commentary. And, and Chuck Bronson is actually speaking this in, in the dialogue. And it's why the whole Tucson, Arizona thing happens, because they set it up to where he's this anti-violence, conscientious objector uh, from from the Korea days. And he needs to see the juxtaposition between how they're unarmed in New York and all these crimes happening. But then he's shown in Tucson where almost everyone has a gun and crime is so much lower because there's immediate repercussions. And so that's that kernel of the idea. That's the that's showing that when you can when you when you are able to defend yourself and the criminal element knows you have the capacity to do so, then there's less crime. And they make it so like over the top obvious in the 74 version. Yeah, and it's less obvious in the 2018 version. Um, and that's one of my one of the scenes that I had an issue with. And it needed to happen for the story. But so in the 2018 version, the gang gets the address of the home off of their like GPS navigation system in the car because one of the guys is a valet at a restaurant. And I understand it's a revenge story. The, the mother needs to die. The daughter needs to get hurt to be basically a remake of the original. But the reality of the situation is thieves almost never, almost never invade a home where they even suspect that anybody's actually there. It's just super, super, super rare. Like Truman Capote wrote a book in Cold Blood about one time it happened. It, it, it's, it's super never happens. Um, people don't like being seen committing crimes. Uh, the chance that, you know, it's, it just introduces all kinds of more risk to the situation. They, you know, the people that are there could not only see you and then run away, call a neighbor, could have a cell phone, could have a gun, be armed, could have an alarm system that could trigger. Any number of things could go happen and, you know, and go wrong for your burglary. That it's just just having people home or lights being on or any of these things is is a huge deterrent to crime. Not only that, but just the idea that there could be a gun in the home. Uh, so it's a highly unlikely event that this that this kind of scenario would ever actually take place. But I'm not to say that it's not impossible. It could happen. Well, how it's set up is that they're not supposed to be home, and that's why they're <clears throat> they're targeted. Well, they know they're home. In the original part, I thought that they return home from. A movie like they were going to go to this celebratory dinner and we're talking about the, the 2018 version right yeah yeah so valet guy slips the information to the thugs to rob the place because they think that the family is going to be out celebrating this dinner at some fancy restaurant dad well willis gets called into work and so mom and daughter go out somewhere else 
for a shorter amount of time. Criminals break into the house. Mom and daughter return home and find the criminals already in the house. Is that so how they, it happens? Yes. So so the criminals broke in, not expecting anyone to be there. Like they planned this. Hey, they're going to be gone. We're going to break in. We're going to steal stuff. We're going to get out. Oh, okay. Well, that was not clear from my repeated viewings of the film. If that's you're probably right about that because you seem pretty sure about that. But every time I've seen it, like the 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 mom and the daughter are there in the house. And then it's quite a while before they realize that, you know, oh, there's a window open. Oh, there could be somebody here. Right. And and I think that the, the moment you might have missed is when they're driving up to the house, the, the, the mom and the daughter. And yeah. it's just the two of them. They're returning home from some, you know, shorter amount of time than fancy dinner. So the criminals thought they had, you know, two, three hours and mom and daughter went out for ice cream instead. Something like that. Okay. So Robert's wrong. It's all okay. It's all good. It's still, everything I said was right, though. <laughs> except for the except for the movie part being home having people around having risk involved so you see even that proves my point that they wouldn't have wanted to rob it while people were home they were would rather people were not there right yeah and and then even when there's the confrontation they don't even want to cause physical harm there's the one guy who's threatening to rape the daughter but even the other criminals trying to keep him in check and then once the mom and daughter fight back and there's like a struggle, you know, evidence of some sort or something that's like, okay, they're just like, all right, fuck it. You know, let's just end this and commit, you know, violence by shooting them because one of them was about to escape or whatever. But it was not something that they had intended to do, not something they planned to do, but they became frustrated and um, went into the, you know, extra level, the whole nother level of violence in the right. 2018. And things escalate because people resist. Right. And, and back to your point about, you know, having the lights on and all of these things being home, uh, potential for having a gun in the home. It's it's almost a relative thing. It's like you just need to be less uh, less visibly a target than the other options out there for the criminals. Right. Because that's it's it's a deterrent. I mean, a, a determined person will be able to overcome a lot of things. But if it's if it's a numbers game, <clears throat> it's just they're looking for easy marks. They're looking for something that's easy to do that is low risk. And that's why having concealed carry and, and having lights and having video cameras and these things are deterrents. Locking your doors, all of these things. Right. Just make it that If anybody really wants to get in, they can get in through a window or any number of things. But yeah, if it's more effort, you're just right. less likely. Right. Um, now, I wanted to bring up the idea of the conscientious objector from the Chuck Bronson movie. Okay. Because it ties right in with the Jordan Peterson concept of virtue is having the capacity to cause harm but choosing not to. Does this sound familiar to you? Virtue is the capacity to cause harm, but choosing not to? Right, showing restraint. Being powerful or, or having your own power, but, but using restraint and using your moral code to not exercise that power. I'd say that's one aspect of virtue, but okay, go ahead. Well, it's the one that I, I'm choosing to, to pick on here. Okay, pick on it. Because in, in the 74 version, um, Chuck is a conscientious objector, though he was still in the military, I think, as a medic. But I think that's why they didn't send him to the front lines. Um, but it, it's showing that he was in the military. He is. A, I mean, they, they show him in the very first scene, like shirts off. I mean, the dude is fit, right? He's like buff and he's a tough dude. And in the book, actually, um, it was more of a, an accountant type, a, a squirrely guy. Uh, and, and apparently the original uh, producer production team was looking at people like Dustin Hoffman for the movie. And Bronson was like, no, you know, if you want me, we got to change the guy's occupation. We got to change his backstory. He's got to be like a tougher guy who's manly, but doesn't want to cause harm. So he has more restraint, more control over his emotions and, and more ability. And it also shows him as not just any order follower, right? He was, and I don't know if there's a draft during the Korean war. Do you know? There must have been, right? Because there was during the um, Vietnam War. So no, I don't think there was during the Korean War. It could be wrong, though. Okay. Well, the movie was made in 74 Vietnam time. So maybe that's... I'm sort of filling in some holes here, making some shit up right here, but that's what... Do it. Do on the last night. But I could see him in, in the story saying, okay, I'm not going to go and kill people for you, but I'm also not going to, like stand in front of that train, right? So if you're going to threaten me with violence to make me go somewhere and do something, I'll be a conscientious objector. I'll be a medic. I'll do good things as best I can in the situation. So it's showing that he's not just any order follower. And that's something we talked about with Mance Raider on our Dances with Wolves episode where he's like, an order follower is like the worst level of human, right? It's the, I'm just doing my job. I'm just enforcing laws. I don't write them. And from our Larkin Rose concepts, you know, Hitler would have been just a crazy guy if people didn't follow his orders. 
Yeah, I mean, if you're going to say that the order followers are the worst level of human, I think that throws a whole lot of humanity under the bus. I I don't know if they're the the absolute worst level, but they're they don't get a special pass from me. That's that's for sure. Right, but Chuck Bronson in in the movie, he's not just another order follower. I think like he's got a mind of his own. He's making decisions. He's he's assume, he's accepting individual responsibility. And on his trip to Tucson, he sees the effectiveness of that. And and that's what the police are afraid of. They're afraid of that effectiveness being broadcast and known. Yeah, they like to you know have a monopoly. They have people rely on them. Can't be seen as taking the law into their own hands, as they say. I like that there was. Um, like in both movies, there's a kind of a public debate on it, on the situation of, you know, whether the, what's his name? Like the Angel of Death or what was he called? The Grim Reaper. The Grim, whether the Grim Reaper is a good or bad thing. And you got people on both sides. Um, you know, my stance on vigilantism is that the individual who is harmed has a better idea of what justice is than the state. The state, you get a one size fits all level of justice. And it's in the opinion of somebody who you may not agree with some judge guy who you may think is incompetent, who has nothing to do with the situation. And that may be for the best. Maybe you want a completely impartial person, but the, even the judge can all, all they can do is follow the law as written down by a bunch of politicians. So all they can do is throw somebody in a cage or not, or assign them to community service or not, and different levels of that, if the law even allows for that. But the best person to know what justice is, is the person's directly involved. Maybe you don't want that person to go to jail, but maybe you do want them to do something else. Or some recompense for the victim. Right. Yeah. I mean, I I think that the whole concept of justice is is... <clears throat> A challenge for sure. Uh, I, I don't think that the current system where it's monopolized by the state is effective or has the proper feedback or economic calculation associated with it. And there's a great article by Marianne Rothbard about this on the police. And it's uh, basically shows how they fail the market test and how uh, private provision of policing would be far better and more effective. And I think the um, the folks over at libertyweekly.net have some episodes related to that as well. So I'll post all of that on our show notes page at lastnighters.com slash 53. Well, Let's talk a little bit more about the 74 movie because, you know, I just love watching this movie just reconfirmed my love for the look of 70s movies. First of all, I love the style, the fashion. But then when he goes to Tucson and there's that double horned car, that was so <laughs> epic. So epic. And then there's a scene in an airport where you could tell they had not enough extras because they would have the same people walking back and forth in the background over and over again. I don't know if you have to watch that scene a couple of times, but you could see the same person like three times. It's like, okay, they're going off to the left. Oh, and they're going back to the right. Did they forget something? Oh, they're going back to the left. Yeah, that's fun. I did not notice that. So good, good catch. <clears throat> but anyway, um, with both movies, I have to ask you, is Chuck or Bruce, are they perfect moral characters or did they cross the line at any point for you? That is a good question. Um, and it's actually been a little while since I've watched this. I watched the 74 version on Christmas Eve uh, at the Christmas cabin that our family rented. And it was on my little phone and I was trying to get my three-year-old daughter to fall asleep. So sort of half distracted, but... Do you want me to remind you of a scene maybe where he does cross the line? In your opinion, he crosses the line at what point? Well, I'm, I'm just opening it up for discussion, but there's one point where he's walking down the streets with, you know, the gun and he's out looking for up to, you know, looking for no good, looking for trouble. And he comes across a guy getting beat up by three other, you know, thugs, guys. And he walks down, you know, like tough guy into the hall, into the alleyway. And the three thug guys get up and they go, oh, look at what we got here. And they stop beating up the one guy. And then they all brandish their weapons and they walk towards Chuck in a threatening manner, you know, like a challenge, like, okay, we're going to meet your challenge, tough guy. And Chuck pulls out his gun and he guns down one guy and then he guns down another guy. And then by this time, the third guy has started to run and he runs and he starts climbing up a chain link fence and Chuck runs after him and he shoots him in the back. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is any, is any and all of that? Okay. Yeah. That's a tough question. Um, I'd say that his initial interaction was in defense of the other man and being outnumbered. I think that it would be considered a legitimate use of self-defense to fire at, at the people who are threatening you in that way. But the chasing down of the third guy after the threat had been eliminated does seem to be beyond the accepted levels of self-defense and in, in what I think is the current standard in, in you know being prosecuted or not. It's kind of hard to argue that a guy you shoot in the back was a threat to your health. I mean, if he was a cop, he probably would have gotten away with it just fine. 
Right. But, yeah, just toss another gun on the ground and kick it. <laughs> kick it. Yeah. Uh, sprinkle some crack cocaine near him and, you know, it's all yeah, good. So I think Chuck does go maybe above and beyond in that. And then there's a similar scene in the Bruce Willis version where I think Bruce gets beat up, right? He's like trying to protect somebody and, and the two guys just like kick the shit out of him. And this might be before he ends up with a gun. That's yeah, this is before he ends up with a gun. Right. And that's from one of the uh, the shooting victims uh, that he treats at the hospital. Well, what about the scene where he goes and basically just straight up murders the car mechanic guy? Mm, yeah, car mechanic guy. And he, he says, well, I didn't do it. Jack did. And yeah, he, and he pulls the jack out and the car crashes down on him, smashes his brain wide open. Yeah, that's after good... torturing the guy. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. With, with opening up the sciatic nerve and then putting like a caustic whatever agent on it, the like transmission fluid or whatever. Yeah, he's like, yeah, th- this is what they say is the worst possible experience of pain that anyone can have. And without so... having a heart attack. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so without killing you, I'm going to torture you. It's, it's like putting him on the rack in um, The Princess Bride and taking years off his life. And tell me how you feel. Be honest now. It's for posterity. <laughs> Yeah, I think the car thing was was over the top. Uh, that's probably for certain, though. It's I mean, this is a guy that had attacked and possibly murdered his wife. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And put his daughter in the hospital in a coma. I mean, what what's the other p- potential response in in the current paradigm? Right. The, there's the police services uh, who have been ineffective, though they do say that because this isn't just a um, the normal level of crime, that there's usually more to go on. Right. But the the whole time, Bruce is given no, you know, confidence that yeah, this is going to be solved anytime soon or that these cops really are going to be able to do anything. From Hank from uh, Breaking Bad. Who actually is probably the best actor in this movie. <laughs> yeah, he, he had the most going on in it. But he's just, he's Hank from... from Which is Breaking great. Bad. I, I love <laughs> Hank. I want to see more Hank. <laughs> But yeah, I, I think he probably does go too far. Now, before we wind down, because we're already getting long in the tooth here. Wow, it's going quick. It is going quick. And, and we got a lot more to talk about, I'm sure. But the whole point of this movie being brought up was based on a friend of ours, a mutual friend who suggested it. And you said that they identified a certain point being made in the final 10 or 15 minutes of the movie that was like a big deal. And that's why they wanted us to talk about it. So right. I watched this movie. And I'm like, okay, I'm looking for this. What is it? What 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 was the thing that he thought was a big deal and would be so obvious that we'd be able to talk about it? Because when I'm watching it, I'm like, totally fine. Legitimate use of de- defense in the, in the final 10 minutes, you know, defending himself. So what's the argument? Well, I don't know. He didn't tell me. So all we have can do is speculate. And I assume that the argument is what Hank says at the very, very end, and that you were a guy, you know, and worried about this guy coming after your daughter. So you bought some guns to protect your family and you came in, broke in, you killed him. And that's what anybody would do. I assume that's the argument and that the, that should be perfectly legal and fine. And so, the cops should be totally on board with that. No problem. But in reality, I think that Bruce Willis would be doing time for that automatic rifle in the Chicago suburbs or whatever, because that's like totally illegal in Chicago. That's like a complete weapon ban, isn't it? Um, I think that you have to have certain licenses and only certain types of firearms are permitted and allowed. I mean, there's no way. And that thing's a completely fully automatic rifle. Yeah, I don't I don't recall that portion. And it was suppressed. I mean, come on. There's no way that thing's legal. (laughs) Well, in the sake of argument for the movie, he had all the proper paperwork Mm -hmm. for it. Right. In whatever fictional bureaucratic paperwork he needed to have. And I thought it was interesting when he went to the gun store originally and the um, cutesy girl who's in the video, he ends up talking to her about, oh yeah, we can totally set you up. You just got to fill this out and this out and this out. And then it's like super easy. And then they do this background check and it's like really quick. But even that level of stuff, which I thought the movie was trying to make it sound like it was actually easy, was a ton of crap to deal with. Just the capacity to defend yourself. Right. But maybe his argument is that, because Hank knows he's the killer. Hank knows he's the Grim Reaper the whole time, or at least at least towards the end of the movie. Yeah, he's he's, he's figured it out, and he's sort of giving him this... This wink-wink, hey, it's everything's okay as long as you're done. Right, as long as you're done, that, that gun's going to disappear, or whatever one that was left at one of the scenes or, or whatever. Right, as long as you're done, we're not coming after you, and you did the right thing, and we're, we're tacitly approving of you doing this, and I'm totally satisfied. And then he eats that, that slice of pizza, now See, I'm think- satisfied. I think I think the original 74 is more realistic in the cops being challenged by the appearance of a vigilante and they have to put an end to it. But they can't go after him either. Right. But they can't go after him either. Yeah. So they're kind of hemmed in by their own thing. And so they just want to make him go away. And I I took that as they want to they want to run him out of town or kill him. Yeah. But they still want the benefit of having him around. I mean, 
less crime does make them look good. They don't want crime to go away entirely because they are a government business and they need to have some excuse for them to exist. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm following you. So do you think that there was a problem at the end with, with the police sort of giving the, the nod and letting it go? Because I was kind of okay with that. I think it doesn't happen in real life. But if I am either one of those guys, I would be totally fine with it. Of course. Even if, even if, you know, Bruce does cross lines in getting justice for his family. Because imagine, you know, they don't show Bruce murdering any innocent people. And that's always the risk you take, right? When you're when you're operating on incomplete and imperfect information, when you're, you know, kind of like seeking out people based on, well, I'm going to torture this one guy and this one guy gives up another guy. Well, I'm just going to go kill that other guy now. Well, you could get any kind of faulty information off of a torture victim. And they're just going to tell you whatever you want to hear in order for you to stop torturing them. But that's the risk you take. I mean, if I'm going off and killing somebody who I believe, you know, murdered my family, but it turns out that that's an innocent guy. Well, now I'm guilty of murder and there's no justice to be, you know, then I'm the bad guy. That's the risk you take. Yeah, I think if if there wasn't the statist justice system in place that that there would be alternatives brought forth on the market and there would be more um, proliferation of, of people having the capacity to defend themselves that would reduce crime even further. And there would be systems and, and mechanisms in place that would pr- not only prevent crime, but also yield results when crimes happen and recompense for the victims. Not to mention all the crime and not to excuse the crime, but all the crime is absolutely just created by government fiat, by government decree, or by government picking winners and losers, or by government incentivizing people to be poor, or to punish the people when they try and produce. Government creates all kinds of havoc within the market and is probably guilty of essentially 90 some percent of all crime. Not to say that crime would go away without government. I'm not a utopian. But of all the ways that government influences our lives in a negative way, it's got to have some effect, not only psychological, but just real world boots on the ground. Man, I just got screwed out of, you know, the X, this job or X amount of money. I can't get this job. Well, I got to rob somebody. I mean, it's never that cut and dry, but that insidious influence the government has of, you know, like when, uh, how about the drug situation? When uh, Bruce kills the Iceman. Or the ice cream man or whoever that guy was. <clears throat> I had a little bit of an issue with that just because, well, on the one hand, he is shooting kids in the leg that want to walk to school but won't sell drugs for him. And which threatening, is, threatening to murder them the next <clears throat> time. Yeah, which is objectively horrific and immoral, but also a really dumb business plan. Like if you, you're looking for employees, there's going to be way more people that are just going to want to earn a buck than you forcing them to serve you and then causing all kinds of retribution to come down on you because you're out murdering children. I mean, to think that that's not going to have a negative impact on your business is just ridiculous. But also, um, you know, in general, drug dealers are just people that want to serve clients and the government has made this artificial scarcity on a product. And without the ability of the justice system to negotiate, you know, disagreements, they are left to, you know, private mediation or violence to solve their disputes. And uh, you're also talking about, you know, people that are risky enough and living that risky lifestyle, probably not also super smart. If I could make a totally broad blanket statement, you know, and uh, maybe they're not going to be all mediating. But I would say that, you know, private mediation does happen. And it probably happens a lot more than you'd know, because the only thing that does get the headlines is the violence. But anyway, um, you know, drug dealers are not all bad. But when Bruce just goes out and murders that uh, ice cream man, what did you think about that, Daniel? Well, I thought he was coming to the defense of that kid who was being threatened with being murdered if he didn't continue to do the bidding of of the ice cream man. So it was an emancipation, if you will. And it wasn't directly related to him being a drug dealer. And in fact, if if drugs weren't a crime, uh, it would have been a non-issue. Uh, the other feedback I have, and, and while you were speaking, I had a bunch of ideas, but <clears throat> only a couple are going to show up here. Uh, the whole concept of of justice and mediation, um, 
Robert P. Murphy has a, a book called Chaos Theory, which I'll post a link to down below. And Ed Stringham has done a lot of work on this. Uh, there are a lot of private arbitration and private security uh, that people really aren't that aware of, but there are more private security officers in the United States than police officers. Uh, there are dispute resolution via you know credit cards and Yelp and eBay. They all have mediation and uh, dispute resolution uh, services that they offer for protecting people from fraud or uh, shoddy product and thing like things like that. Um, the other thing related to the, um, the police just in general, the FBI in their own reports say that only something like 48 or 50 percent of all violent crime is even reported to the police. And their closure rate on violent crime is something like 30 or 40 percent. And solve rate for property crimes is something like 18 percent. And they even make the argument that in, in the movie, the 2018 version, that police only arrive after the crime has occurred. And uh, Steph Molyneux makes that point that they're just uh, what do you call it? The uh, they're crime historians. They come there and fill out some paperwork and mark down some statistics and whatnot. Um, so the the amount of policing that actually happens from the and I called it a monopoly before, and in, in a way it still kind of is, um, even though there is you know more private security and things like that. But but it's like a different realm um, in my mind here. Uh, but their effectiveness is actually quite low. And uh, I referenced Liberty Weekly earlier. They have a couple of episodes related to the SCOTUS decisions about how there's no duty uh, to protect for for the public uh, in regards to the police. So the police don't actually have to protect you when there's a crime actually occurring in the moment. And they can't be found liable for failing to do so. Right. Um, I did like that the uh, the character of Bruce Willis in this in this in both of them really, but in the, we get the actual dialogue with the the Bruce Willis character that I recall was when you know he he feels that he has failed his one job to protect his family. And I can really you know feel that would hit home with a lot of people because I think as a man you feel that. I don't know if it's an obligation, but you definitely kind of feel like a duty. I don't know if those two words are synonymous. Yeah, kind of. But Responsibility or... Kind of a response. Yeah, like... You take it upon <clears> yourself. <throat> you, you don't... It's not imposed on you. You accept it. Right. You volunteer for it. You're like, I'm going to take on the job of the protector of this family, whether anybody asks me to or not. It's my... I'm going to take on this job. I'm going to make sure this house is secure. I'm going to make sure that everybody is able to defend themselves it's and your, has some. It's your general role. It's the patriarchy. It's, your it's the patriarchy. It, but you're just, you know, you're taking on, you know, responsibility, you know, for, for all that, you know, white male privilege or Sexist. male privilege. You're, you're also taking on an equal amount of responsibility. That's why we're the first ones to die when the boat's going down. <clears throat> so that really appeals to me that, you know, he felt like he failed in the one job he had, even though he had a whole bunch of jobs and he was doing a bunch of them right. But that was like the main one is to keep everybody alive <laughs> and that he failed in that and that he was going to, you know, at least seek out justice. So and the one thing that he could, he couldn't bring his wife back to life, but, you know, he could he could uh, at least see that justice was done. Yeah. And I find that interesting because I, I can't see how he could blame himself really for the earlier events that ended up in his wife dying. I mean, he was called into work and he has responsibility there as well. I mean, certainly he can make a decision, right? Make a choice. Uh, but he didn't know that this thing was going to happen. Right. I'm sure if he had an inkling that it might happen, he would not have gone to work. Maybe he feels that he didn't have, you know, the house secure enough, like with security systems and having the, the daughter and the wife trained in firearms and having them in the home and that sort of thing, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. It seemed like he knew. And, and this was my biggest problem with the 2018 movie. And, and actually want want your take on this. Knox is the bad guy, right? The, the evil dude who, for whatever reason, is, is behind all this and doesn't just let it go. He wants... I guess, revenge or to one up Bruce Willis. And so he breaks into the house again and does it on his own. Like he's actually part of the, the guys that go in there and do it, right? Yeah, he assembles a whole new crew to come in at the end. Yeah, and it seems really stupid. Like, what was the point of that? I mean, I, I understand it's in the script and it's a movie, but I can't imagine a criminal actually going to that level. Yeah, you would think that there would be, I mean, at that point it becomes personal, I suppose, when there's the shootout there at the... Um the club and there's the, you know, the killing of his associates, although he wouldn't give, he wouldn't care about them. Right. But yeah. The idea that he's going to assemble this crew and they're going to go, okay, what's the job? And he's like, we're going to go in and kill some people. And they're like, well, is there going to be like a bunch of money and we're going to get, I mean, we need, we need to get something out of this. We don't care about this person who you hate. 
Yeah, and then he's like uh, shadowing him at the hospital and talking to his daughter in the elevator, leering at him. Yeah, he kind of turns into like a supervillain at that point. Yeah, and that's that's just kind of over the top. That's what made the 2018 version a little bit hokey for me. Hokey, but at least it was a full circle story with a beginning, a middle, and an end that all involved the same characters. All right, well, let's get into that final summary and review. So, Robert, your little breakdown on 74 versus 2018 and your, your ratings for each. Okay, well, 74, I love the look of it. I love the look and feel of a 70s movie. You got that grain. You got the cars that look like they're about 50 feet long and weigh like 10 tons. You got terrible acting. Um, Like, uh, not only does the main character can't act, but his son-in-law is even worse than him. He calls him dad all the time, and it's really weird and awkward. Luckily, the daughter is in like this vegetative state and can't really act so it doesn't matter if she can act or not the mom you know she's like dead almost immediately uh jeff goldblum who we know can act the pants off anybody in that movie is only on screen for like a minute or two it's unfortunate but whatever um the story of the first one is i think they both have their own merits um i do like the way the first one kind of exposes you know government policing and how terrible that is um but and the idea that, you know, you need to take care of yourself and protect yourself. Um, and it's more of an everyman kind of situation. He's not like just some movie star, you know, psycho killer guy, Superman killer guy, like he is in the 2018 version. But uh, the first movie, I wouldn't necessarily super recommend it. It's okay. Um, it's like a 5.5 for me. It was fun for kind of nostalgia's sake, but I wouldn't say it's like super great. Uh, the 2018 version, I, you know, it's shot well. Um, Bruce Willis, I can't stand him as an actor. I thought he was super flat most of the time. There are a few scenes where he actually was acting and he seemed like he was engaged in what was happening in the movie, which is great. He wasn't totally phoning it in, but man, I, whatever. Um, I still think it's a better movie. It starts off with a, a, you know an opening scene that you can actually feel. It's not an opening scene, but you know what I mean? There's some establishing scenes of him caring about his family. He's loving his family. And then you go into this horrific moment so that you care about these characters when they die and you feel the injustice. And then you get the, you get the main character's frustration with the cops and their inability to do anything. And then you get his kind of progression into what if I did something? And that's where that falls down because I think there's definitely needs to be a scene where Bruce Willis is like, oh my God, I just killed a man. Even if I was justified, oh my God, this is, holy crap. I've never done this before. You know, something needs to shake him up. But instead he just like, yeah, I killed a guy and isn't, aren't I great? And this just feels awesome. Now I can see you, you know, enjoying what you're doing because you're getting the sense of justice and self-righteousness overdoing it. But he's still a human being with emotions. And maybe I didn't kill the right guy or, you know, I, even if I, even if I was right to do what I did, I still took a human life who still could have done, you know, good in the world. They're not all bad all the time. Anyway, it's, um, I think it's a better movie. I think this is like a, a seven. I really, I'm not on board with uh, all these super low reviews. I thought it was well done for the most part. I can see what you're saying about the hokiness about it turning into like a super villain guy. And the motivation of the villain is really kind of iffy. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but eh, at least it tells a complete story. So seven, seven, 5.5 and a seven. Go ahead, Daniel. All right. Well, I'm going to do the inverse because uh, I actually found that the older one was was a better movie for me. And I, I like how it ends on that kind of unfinished note where it's almost like Empire, where there's all this kind of left out in the open. And that just feels better to me because he doesn't get the revenge on the actual perpetrators who caused the harm to. So let's make some sequels, family. baby. Yeah, make five of them. Uh, but he does get transformed as an individual and he comes to realize through his tip to, trip to Tucson that there is this whole concept of people having the capacity to defend themselves reduces crime. And so he becomes a changed person. And, and he even at the end, when he gets out of town and moves to Chicago, he sees another violent act happen. And he's like, well, I guess my services are needed here as well. Well, that happens in the 2018 version also. Yeah, we ends up in New York. Yeah, but then there's the then it ends and he's got the finger guns just like the first movie ends and then but then there's like acdc back in black stars playing and it's like really is that it's like it's time to rock and roll i don't know it seems like i don't know well, that was their montage movie uh scene right with with acdc too where he's like learning the skills acquiring the skills of learning how to fire a gun and get better and better at hitting the target and taking the the gun apart and putting it back yeah and that's and that's it. where the movie fails i don't think that tonally that makes any kind of sense like 
now it's time to rock and kick some ass. Yeah. It's like, this is a man who just murdered. So he's just like a doctor. There should have been a scene, at least. I mean, there's one scene where like the cop mentions it. Hey, you're better at saving lives than you are at taking lives. Here's a doctor whose entire life is spent saving lives. He has vowed to do no harm. And here he is killing people. You'd think there'd be some internal conflict there. Well, and he, he actually opens the movie by trying to save a cop's life. And then the cop ended up dying. And then he goes and tries to save the perpetrator's life. And, and I don't think that they show the resolution to that. Um, but I it's, think that that's, that's where you're, you, that's kind of where you're saying you wanted him to, to stay at, right? I wanted him to be a normal human being that would have a visceral reaction to taking a human life, especially if you're a doctor whose entire goal in life is to save lives. Now, maybe that scene exists in the script, but Bruce Willis like was like, oh, I, I don't know if I could do this scene, rip it out. Maybe we're not going to shoot that scene. It'll be fine without it. Don't worry, guys. I don't know if you heard that Kevin Smith story, but apparently when he was doing, um, what's that, Cop Out movie? Kevin Smith had like 30 pages of the script. Bruce Willis was just like, nah, we don't need that scene. Don't need that scene. Don't need that scene. And he just ripped pages out. And Bruce, and Kevin Smith was like, uh, okay, Bruce, I guess we're not doing those scenes. <laughs> That's the first I heard of that, but... I wouldn't put it past him. I mean, he he does have some cachet that he can uh, turn in, and and so did Bronson. By the way, I mentioned earlier that he actually had them change the um, the script and and the the motivations behind the character, the story, the backstory behind the character um, before he would do the movie, before he agreed to do it. And this was actually uh, Chuck's breakout hit. Like he had been in a ton of films prior to this, a bunch of westerns, and I thought that they made a nod to that when they went to Old Tucson in this movie. Um, and he was also in the Magnificent Seven which we did a, a show on a while back. And That's right, he was. Yeah. But he still wasn't like a big star back then. Uh, this was the thing that kind of made him that big star. And, yeah, inexplicably, but yeah. Yeah, and then within a few years, he was one of the top draws in Hollywood uh, a few years after this after this film, though he was big in France prior to this. And uh, trivia night question here, he was actually working with Sergio Leone uh, in some of those Westerns, and he was considered for the lead role in Fistful of Dollars, the first of the, um, mm. what do they call that? The Good, the Bad, yeah, the Ugly yeah. uh, trilogy. Mm -hmm. uh, and the role eventually went to one Mr. Clint Eastwood, making him a household name. And with no name. Yeah, and those, those are great movies, by the way. I think that we should dive into that. Haven't we talked point. about one of those? I, I could have sworn we did at least one, or maybe you mentioned, hey, we should do uh, the whole series. Outlaw Josie Wales, which I thought was great. Yeah, it's not very good. <laughs> All right, so so my ratings and reviews. Um, I I really enjoyed the older one. I thought that the, the, the concept and the social commentary was better. I liked the ambiguous ending, and I liked the clear juxtaposition between... Um, an armed society versus an unarmed society, and they just hit you right in the face with it, like that social commentary. The second one, I think it starts out well. It does have more of a complete story, but then it gets hokey. You know, the ACDC black and black, the, the lack of remorse or or the, the response to killing people, and then the villain just going off the rails and going into unbelievable uncharted territory. So for me, the 74 is an 8.0. I mean, it's up there, man. It's a good movie. Wow. And I'm going to go with the 7.0 on the newer one, the 2018 version. I still enjoyed it. And I do recall in some libertarian Facebook groups that we are a part of that people were commenting about how it was such a good movie, but people seem to hate it in general, like critics and everyone else. And, and all these libertarians are like, oh, it's actually, you know, pretty good. Uh, this is this is my 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 notes. Chuck shows up at the hospital. Bad acting ensues. The mom dies. Funeral. More bad acting. That's, that's how my notes go. An 8.0. Those are quite You're a generous man. A generous man. I'm feeling quite generous tonight. Uh, speaking of generous, I think we're going to be generous with your appearances on the show again. You will be back with us next week, and we will also have another guest. Uh, I believe it will be Rocky Ferenberg. Hope I'm saying his name right. We'll get it correct on the show, and we'll be discussing Smallfoot, which apparently has a twist, an angle to it that is fully worthy of discussion. Um, I haven't actually seen it yet, but I did read some Amazon reviews when I ended up buying the movie and people were saying things like, I saw the trailer and I thought it was going to be one thing and then we watched the movie and it's totally this other thing. And yeah, it's got a big, the entire plot revolves around an interesting discussion. To so out. we'll get into that and, and actually uh, have can I can I show it to my kids? Is this is this kid friendly? Is it okay to, to oh, yeah. watch it? Yeah, okay. it's super super kid friendly. Okay, all right. So it's not like some total like Captain it's not like Planet. the Lion King <laughs> that you would have them watch like every day of their lives, indoctrinating them with that. It's a Kuna Matata. Yeah, that's another episode that we did. So we'll be posting that down below on the show notes page, lastnighters.com slash fifty three. 
You can also find it on thelaunchpadmedia.com. And uh, if you like what we do here and you want to support the show and also get pre-show and post-show content, we've got a bunch of other, uh, a variety of, of benefits and uh, uh, prizes for you at our Patreon at lastnighters.com slash Patreon. So we'll be back next week with Smallfoot. Uh, any any final words for our audience, Robert Johnson? Muchas gracias para escuchando. I don't know. I'm butchering that. Sorry, everybody. Trying to resurrect the old Spanish. Of high school Spanish. Thanks for listening, everybody. Appreciate it for tuning in. Any kind of uh, support you can give us is duly appreciated. We're at the Patreon at Reed Rothbard. We, you could also leave us a, a positive review. You could just get the word out about the show if you like it. If you know anybody you think you might like it, the show, man, let them know. We appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, share it around. Give us uh, some of those ratings on the old iTunes. The more ratings we get, the more prominent the show is when people are doing searches for like movie reviews. And there's about a million and three uh, shows that do this. Um, one of them is uh, actually called Real on Reels. And they're friends of ours. And I, I really enjoy their stuff. And so I, I highly recommend them. I'll post that in our show notes page as well. Uh, and with that, I will say good night from last night, everyone. All right, we'll continue a little bit longer on the Actual Anarchy podcast. Uh, the anarchist mom, who was our guest on the Lord of the Rings episode a while back, said that the no duty to protect is from the Warren versus District of Columbia decision. And uh, Liberty Weekly does actually have an episode on that. So that it will be the one that I do post on the show notes page at actualanarchy.com slash 110. I didn't hear anything of what you said. I was removing my jacket. It's too hot. Too it's hot. Maybe, I'm, maybe I'm coming down with a fever again. I don't know. It's getting hot in here. So take off all your clothes, however the rest of that song goes. All right. So I have one major question for you for this oh, good. Final, I like questions. final portion of the show. I'm good at trivia. This is from the 2018 version. Okay. The LeBron versus MJ debate. Your thoughts, Robert. Who is the GOAT? I mean, well, I still think, got some, some games left. I think you got to wait until LeBron retires to really do that. Um, you know, MJ had an entire team around him that allowed him to win so many championships. LeBron, though, is is probably physically a better, you know, specimen. Like he's taller, he has a more complete game, that sort of thing. But you know, I watching both of them play, there was a time when you were watching the Bulls, and you know, the Bulls would be down like 15 points, whatever, come in the fourth quarter, and then you're just like, well, Michael just decides it's time to win the game and he just turns it on goes iso and, and he would score like 25 points in the fourth quarter and no one could stop him and then the bulls would win and it, i don't know if i see that from lebron i don't see that ability to just go you can't stop me just go ahead and try and stop me he did have a few quarters i think maybe against boston when um i want to say like it was the fourth quarter of, of some series and he just took over and that turned the series for him was that when he was with cleveland and won the championship because I will quibble with you on that Jordan had a complete team around him. Um, I think that he More did eventually, team. but he he created that team. He crafted it. He molded it with guys who were on the team. Whereas LeBron jumped ship to favorable waters. He teamed up with Chris Bosh and Dwayne Wade, creating the super team. Yes, he did. And then he also orchestrated his comeback to Cleveland, also with significant help. For so his sounds like you're on uh, Team NJ. Well, I think... MJ was a maestro. He was he was a virtuoso and he had an elegance to him in his ability to play and his his uh his viciousness, right? His his drive, his competitive competitiveness. Drive. Yeah. Competitiveness was just off the charts and I don't think LeBron comes close to that. Now, I do agree that LeBron has more games left in him and going to the Lakers now where they have this hodgepodge of young talent and crazy veterans. Uh, if he can turn something uh, a championship out of that without some other big um, max free agent coming on board or two, uh, then then I think he's in MJ territory as far as his legacy and his overall career arc. But we got to remember that that MJ took a good uh, eighteen months off to go play baseball, and it it impacted what two or three years of his career. Which True. was the, the window for the Sonics, by the way, when they were tip top and super good and they were blowing it in the first round of the playoffs two two years in a row, I think. First year to Dikembe and second year to the Lakers. Well, we, also, we also don't know how much of an impact Phil Jackson had on MJ's success. We, 
MJ had the benefit of working all those years with Phil Jackson. That's true. The also, but but the um, <clears throat> we're, this was a this is a movie show, right? Um, <laughs> but there there have been significant rule changes in the NBA as well, and I think that it's a more physical game in Jordan's era. There's hand checks and other uh, defensive uh, tools in the toolkit. You could kit. do right, right. You could but definitely you be more defensive back then. It's right. it's basically like today's NFL, where the defense is crippled and handcuffed the whole time. If you're driving to the lane these days, you pretty much can't be touched. Right, and that's the environment that LeBron plays in. Now, I'm not saying he's not a good player. He is. He's a great player. Uh, but this is why the the intergenerational comparisons are so difficult. But I, I got to give MJ the the leg up in, in the debate here. In the in the in the sense of fire, just the overall drive and to win. I've never seen anybody quite like. Michael Jordan. There probably are plenty of other athletes that have that drive, but it doesn't match up with the physical talent or just the 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 fact that the focus was so much on him and he had so much impact on each game. Like maybe there's a football player who has that kind of drive, but you don't notice it because he's one of 11 guys on the field. Right, right. And then the other thing and he's not got, always touching the ball. The other thing we've got to not forget is Jordan um, played in college, what, two, three years? Probably, yeah. And when he was in high school, I think he wasn't even a starter. He wasn't even uh, on the varsity team. So he got, he was, he got a lot better. Yeah, he, he was, he got was better. Uh, unregarded going into college. Meanwhile, LeBron had been recruited <laughs> out of high he, school. He was on the radar before high school. Yeah, he was he was pronounced King James when he was like 17 or 18, whatever it was. Right. So he's going to end up having a, a longer career than Jordan just because he got the earlier start. Can you imagine playing high another. school basketball against LeBron James? <laughs> Just, <laughs> I'm going to try and guard him, coach, but I'm sorry. I'm sorry in advance. He's going to get like 50 tonight. <laughs> or more. Yeah. He's going to go Will Chamberlain and drop 100 on us. Now just just because he can. Yeah, anyway, um, that's our bonus content for our actual Anarchy audience. Uh, we really got... Do appreciate you guys, and we'll be back next week with Smallfoot. Um, any final points regarding the movie, Robert, um, Death Wish 74 or 2018, before we get into our Kathleen Turner Overdrive, which is available for the Patreon supporters? Um, You know, I, I, I could go look through my notes and think of stuff. Oh, there was that one time in the 74 version where he's like at a party, and there's that racist argument that that lady is talking to. You remember this scene? I do, yeah, yeah, refresh me. Where the guy's like... This guy's a racist. This this angel of death. He's going out killing black guys. He's like a white guy going out and killing black guys. And the lady's like, what? So you want him to kill more white muggers or something like that? You want to up the number of white muggers so they can kill them too? Oh, yeah, yeah. I do remember that. And I, th I think she was making almost the, um, I think ben, ben Shapiro makes this point that most of the violent crime is committed by, you know, statistically speaking, um, you know, they break it down by race and whatever. And and lo and behold, that, that's the people committing the crimes in these areas. And so if you're going to defend yourselves or, or seek out vigilante justice, you're going to show a disproportionate number of those people as, as being uh, on the receiving end of that vigilante justice. When do you tiptoe around that response? What do you mean those people? <laughs> I didn't tiptoe enough, apparently. Anyway, we can get into a little bit more on the uh, Kathleen Turner Overdrive. I think I think we should call it on this one. Uh, time of death, uh, actualanarchy.com slash 110. Thanks, everybody. And good night. Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do